Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Maria Maldar, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology on Pantheon Podcast. History in Five Songs with host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Yes, indeed. Welcome back to another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, brought to you by Pantheon. Pleased, as always, to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, You can uh, check out these podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, and over 40 other podcast platforms. So... This episode, I wanted to do another episode like we did uh, the Martin Birch episode. We got a good response on that. Uh, I've had other producers mention to me, but uh, one that's always been a bee in my bonnet and a bee in many bands bonnets is Rick Rubin. So I wanted to call this episode uh, Rick Rubin When It Mattered. Um, I debated Rick Rubin When He Mattered or Rick Rubin When It Meant Something. Um... But he mattered and he meant something is a little personal and uh, and a little unfair. Um, I like using the word it because uh, Rick Rubin and the Rick Rubin sound and Deaf American and then American was kind of a brand. It is an it uh, or it definitely was an it for the records we're going to look at uh, here on History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff today. So, um, yeah, so without further ado, let's start with some music, and then I'm going to explain how we got to uh, this place. Uh, so this is uh, this is designed to wake you up. This is a little bit of Slayer postmortem. Take a listen. Hold the key to his own death. Enter into mama culture around your neck Lifting away debris of hated life Cold touch of death begins to chill your spine Seeking life beyond your perishments Repeating words echoing through your mind Alright, so here we go. Rick Rubin um, notoriously uh, lands in the world of the heaviest metal imaginable slayer uh, from his roots, essentially in hip-hop. Uh, Run DMC is kind of what made his 
made his day or or made uh, sort of this excitement and hubbub around Rick Rubin. But um, what is shocking uh, right off the bat Coming from this hip-hop world, or this nascent hip-hop world, where they're practically, you know, it's really just, it's just really start coming uh, coming into being, um, he kind of takes over from the Brian Slagle Metal Blade situation, bit of a long story, it's a little bit of a dance how basically, uh, you know, Slayer is moving up the food chain here as Thrash uh, gets important, and they do this album, Rain in Blood. Uh, Rain in Blood, 1986, October 7th, 1986, it's considered one of the greatest heavy metal albums of all time, let alone Thrash. Uh, it comes out the same year as Master of Puppets, so it's a big deal year. Uh, these are two of the uh, most beloved heavy metal albums of all time. But the funny thing about Slayer or Rain and Blood is that it's a 29 minute album. Seven out of 10 songs on this album are under three minutes long. Uh, so they're coming from two full lengths and an EP and they're arriving at this record uh, with with this this crazy level of excitement. And the reason we get the excitement is somewhat to do with Rick Rubin. So here we get Rick Rubin establishing what he kind of means to bands for a while. We're going to get to this a little later. I actually picked Postmortem because I want to do a little Postmortem on uh, on the Rick Rubin situation because we did call this Rick Rubin when it mattered because later on, I will argue it doesn't matter. And even along the way, I'm going to mention some contentious things about Rick Rubin. So um, what I love about this uh, is that Okay, so so this is Slayer sounding, and this this is going to apply to much of what we talk about here uh, in these in these early nascent important Rick Rubin albums and songs. Uh, it sounds like Slayer is electrified, loosened up. They've all got three beers in them. We're recording this in the basement or or at or at a notorious farmhouse in Old Bridge, New Jersey. Uh, that kind of thing. Um, it, basically, Slayer, previous to this, uh, you know, super heavy band, notorious. They had the makeup, the Satanism, but they weren't really making the waves that Anthrax and Metallica were making. Uh, and... Uh, this is sort of because those records, uh, you know, uh, Show No Mercy and Hell Awaits and the Haunting the Chapel EP, they were feeling a little kind of claustrophobic and stuffy, a little drenched in reverb, a little too echoey. Uh, but basically what Rick Rubin does is he he electrifies everybody. The drums are massive, but really this is about very, very electric sounding guitars, kind of cleaner sounds. And again, there's there's this sort of there's this sort of operating at the three beer level that you get on this record. And what do you do when you operate at the three beer level? You play fast and you and you make a 29 minute album and it turns out to be a classic. So there you go. Um, but yeah, no. Another thing I wanted to mention. Uh, there's a little bit of a corollary here to Run DMC and even what uh, Rick is going to do for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. One of his biggest things, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Uh, essentially. Um, what he did with Run DMC, the idea was to literally uh, feature beats and voices. I mean, he, he stripped it down so far. And you kind of get that stripping it down to the essence of what is great about Slayer and taking away any sort of uh, 80s production no-nos and, uh, and taking away that wall of sound and turning it into something where there's some, some breathing room between them. Again, the three beer thing. It's, it's not the sober thing. It's not the six or seven beer thing uh, where, where, again, the walls are closing in on you kind of thing. It's, it's, it's the operating at, at the peak blood flow, essentially. And that's what you get with this, uh, with this Slayer album. Okay. 
So, moving on in our history of five songs with Martin Popoff, Rick Rubin, When It Mattered, we have uh, The Cult. Uh, take a little listen to this. This is uh, King Contrary Man from the Electric album. I took a while. All right, so to me, uh, the Cult Electric album is, uh, the parallel to this is the Black Sabbath, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath album cover. Uh, I always uh, I always was amazed that uh, that nobody raised more of a fuss about that album cover uh, when it came out. I've got a whole chapter on this in one of my Black Sabbath books, Black Sabbath FAQ. I've, I'm just mesmerized by this cover and how it did not it did not get completely censored off the face of this earth. Same thing uh, with the with the love album. Uh, you know, <clears throat> you know, I, I come from I come from an early past where, or uh, you know, the early days where um, there was a snobby snobbishness. There was a sort of um, how would I explain this? Uh, you know, everybody did feel somewhat in their lane, and you and you defended your your music. So the cult comes from the ultimate place of snobbishness. They come from the post punk world with Southern Death Cult. They put out the the Love album. And there's an excitement there. What is that excitement? It's the Mark Mark Knopfler uh, money for nothing excitement. It's the Hart Barracuda excitement. It's like people love metal if you uh, give them a little bit of metal. They love heavy guitars. So what happens? The cult has, uh, you know, a very exciting sort of hit situation with the Love album because uh, surprise, surprise, um, heavy guitars and rocking out is a good thing. And uh, and even even in the world of um, post punk, so with the electric album, they turn everything on its ear. They turn in basically an an ACDC hair metal Rolling Stones type record um, that kind of goes against everything a punk band or a post band uh, post punk band is supposed to believe in. Um, so it's a Rick Rubin production, and again, how does Rick enter into this? So, so again, it's this idea of simplifying, taking it right down to its base, giving it a clean, electric, free-burning truck moving down the down the freeway at seventy miles an hour sound. Um, and again, to to compare, I mean, it's very very similar. Uh, love can compare a lot to Hell Awaits in that you do get this stuffy. Uh, airless room, um, conference room at a hotel sound uh, out of those records. And and you feel a little bit kind of like closed in afternoon fatigue after listening to them. You don't get that out of Rain and Blood and you don't get that out of uh, out of Electric. Um, You know, and and to almost double down and prove the point, the next album is Sonic Temple, and it's produced by Bob Rock. And what do you get there? You get a Canadian compromise. You get sort of a record that's half between love and half between electric, and it just doesn't have the excitement that electric has. So again, to reiterate... um, 
you know, Rick, the, the idea with Rick is that, um, he's all, he's always kind of sending you back to your roots, sending you back to what got you excited about music in the first place. And kind of an interesting thing here is that, you know, he's, he's almost sending the cult back to the seventies before they were music snobs. Um, you know, what, when they, when they were kids first discovering guitar rock, Billy Duffy, you know, first picking up a guitar. Um, so this isn't about magazine and XTC and Teardrops ex- explodes anymore. It's literally about ACDC. I mean, this is this sounds like an ACDC record. And so again, getting back to Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, I'm just amazed that there was not more revolution. Uh, to quote the cult, over the cult, uh, when they did this. People just loved it. Um, they kind of waded into, they bounded into this hair metal space. And again, this almost, uh, you know, this this almost uh, pre predestines what was going to happen with grunge. You bring an exciting element in. The cult were not a hair band, but you bring them into a hair band situation with an album that could, could run with all the hair band albums. And people love it because they want to see and hear something different. These are English people. They look different. All the graphics was sort of different. So yeah, what Rick did for them is uh, he just he just brought them to a magic place. Now, I want to mention, no, no, I'm going to move on and I'm going to mention it a little bit later because there are some negatives we, we do have to mention about uh, Rick Rubin. We will get to those negatives, but first, let's take a short break. When we dropped the first few episodes of Rock and Roll Archaeology into the feed three and a half years ago, little did we know that this telling of rock and roll history would become a pantheon of rock and roll podcasts. Since many of you first joined us on our rock and roll exploration, the halls of the rock and roll pantheon have filled with shows like Deeper Digs in Rock, Rock and Roll Librarian, Muses, Art of Rock with Caution Friends, Real Rock with the Reverend Andy King, Miss Pamela's Pajama Party, Vinyl Snob, and more. We are proud of this one-of-a-kind approach to an audio magazine of high-quality shows. That is Pantheon, and thank you for your support. We couldn't have done it without you, our diggers who listen to all of our shows. And now, we are excited to let you know that every show available as part of Pantheon can be found in their own podcast feed to subscribe to in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the shows you've come to love. We look forward to adding more shows to fill the halls here in our Pantheon of Rock and Roll and find them all at PantheonPodcast.com. Keep up the rockin'. All right. So back again on History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff. Let's move on to our third song. Um, well, let's take a listen. We'll discuss. This is Masters of Reality with the Candy Song. My go down and see my sugar Okay, so I find this to be the perfect quintessential Rick Rubin joint. Uh, Essentially what you get here is you get the the absolute perfect, perfect um, big electric guitar, big booming drums sound with a lot of space in between. 
very airy, very roomy, uh, a lot of pregnant pauses, and just this big, massive, high-fidelity sound. What you get when, you know, again, Rick Rubin, when it mattered, what you get at this time is this incredible high fidelity and the moving away from any sort of um, 80s tropes that all turned out to be dated. You get sort of a cool 70s vibe, a a timeless 70s vibe of some of the best sounding 70s albums. Um, So uh, what what you get with Masters of Reality and this, this gorgeous, gorgeous album, it's one of my favorite albums of all time. And again, to double down, the next album, Sunrise uh, on the Suffer Bus, uh, does not have um, this sound, and it has a very different um, sort of set of songs. This is more of a stadium rocking thing, and that's another thing you get with Rick Rubin, is you get this big, bold, stadium rocking feel. Not a lot of textures, just literally, it just sounds like a guitar, maybe some doubled guitars. Guitar, bass, and drums, simple, strip it down sort of thing. Now, this may not be the best place to mention um, these negatives that I want to mention about Rick that that uh, that get brought up because uh, you know for the life of me I can't remember off the top of my head that when I've interviewed Chris about this record uh, he had much negative to say but. Many times I've interviewed bands who have been produced by Rick Rubin, and there are a lot of things that get said, like he was barely ever there. He just showed up a few times. He didn't do much. Um, He's definitely not one of these uh, engineer producers. He's not a guy, you know, mic and everything and setting up and doing all this. He's more of the, uh, you know, the barefooted Swami with the big beard. Um, that that is uh, supposed to just impart wisdoms on you. Now, you know, you can equate that with the type of laziness, and there definitely is that feel to this. You 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 can be a bit of a you know um, a bullshitter in a certain way. It's a it's a little bit like the difference between realism and abstract art. You can bullshit your way through abstract art. Um, but realism, you know, even something as denigrated as like Robert Bateman's, uh, you know, wildlife things or Alex Colville or, or Mary Pratt or, or all these, you know, these sorts of very, you know, Rembrandt, uh, all the Dutch masters, all of this, you know, you, you can't, you can't, you have to have craft to be able to do this. You don't have to have craft to do what Rick Rubin does. You have to have philosophy and and possibly a type of abstract genius and that's and that's what you get with Rick you know the secret weapon in in all of these cases is is the engineers people like Andy Wallace so yes I have had I, I I've had many people you know quietly at various degrees of denigration or just being polite about it, saying things like well Rick really didn't do much he really wasn't there um, so that is a bit of a problem with Rick um, you know and you get this later on um, well I'll, I'll mention it now I mean, no, I'm going to leave this. I'm going to leave this for later. I'm going to talk about some of the uh, the later things and how, you know, we are at a point later in life when the Rick Rubin part of the equation really doesn't matter. But I do want to celebrate Rick Rubin with this episode and um, because this was very exciting. I mean, Deaf American and American, you felt that it was a badge of quality the same way as, uh, as Sub Pop and those Charles Peterson photographs and everything was in the grunge era. Um, you know, it, it was a mark 
of uh, that you were going to be excited about these records, that it was it was taking you back to the absolute stripped down essence of the magic of heavy metal when you got these records. Um, okay, so yeah, here here's a spot where I want to mention. So we are at January twenty fourth, nineteen eighty nine. This is our last uh, entry from the eighties. Um, but I did want to mention uh, a couple of other things as we as we move into the nineties here that Rick was part of that I'm not going to actually play you a song from Wolfsbane. Wolfsbane is another one where Blaze Bailey complained about Rick Rubin and had problems with him and, you know, this this non-lack of actually, you know, wanting to dig in and actually do any work. Um, but, again, Wolfsbane, uh, you got this really cool, loose-bolted bolted kind of punky update on the new wave of British heavy metal sound, and you really got that Rick Rubin vibe off of that record. And it should have been a bigger record. There was an excitement there. There was an excitement around the band. And again, some of the excitement was because this is produced by Rick Rubin. It's Deaf American. So so basically you got, um, or it might have been just American. I don't know. I, I, I didn't kind of go into uh, checking all that out, but there is this sort of transition point. Um, but it is Again, it is a mark of quality, and, uh, you know, this brings up a point. I mean, Rick Rubin records did not always get to be huge records, and this is one that didn't. Another one I wanted to mention, a fond a fond record uh, to me, uh, Four Horsemen. Nobody said it was easy. Again, you get Rick Rubin doing great things with this band's sound. It really sounds like the Cult Electric. I mean, it is just so stripped down and groovy and rocking and just free-burning, big, loud basement jam sort of sound. Everything is perfect high fidelity like strapping on a big 747 sized pair of headphones and having the bass and the treble cranked beautifully and that's what you got out of four horsemen and you frankly got that out of their next record which um which um rick didn't produce they only made the two records um okay so moving on um let's let's play a uh, let's play a fourth track this is trouble with the wolf take a listen Okay, so Trouble is kind of a situation that is like uh, Slayer. They're coming from a Metal Blade past, and they're coming from a Metal Blade production space. So the the um, you know the first uh, the first three Trouble albums, uh, Psalm Psalm Nine, uh, self titled, you could call it, um, uh, The Skull and Run to the Light. They have um, they have this sort of um, a different kind of uh, claustrophobic sound. They're they're noisy and underground sounding. Um, great records, and and that gives them a type of mystique. But what happens is they also, like Slayer, are making this transition to a major label situation. They have, kind of confusingly, a second self-titled album. So what you just heard is off of the album called Trouble. And what Rick Rubin does again here is he just brings out the absolutely massive Sabbatherian doom in trouble strips away all the um you know all the all kind of the um 
the textures or the textures are still left in, but they're all very electric and very redlined and the drums are huge and the songs just hit you right between the eyes. Trouble is a magnificent album, an incredible, incredible, um, you know, doom record. This is a band that everybody says should have been huge. But again, this is another band that will uh, semi-politely tell you, well, I don't know, Rick kind of screwed us up. I mean, he didn't, he, he kind of helped us and he screwed us up at the same time. You get a lot of this love-hate relationship with Rick uh, from these guys. Slayer guys as well. I've talked to numerous Slayer guys and they've all, you know, had good and bad things to say. Um, but Slayer's an important uh, point, uh, case because like, like um, another band we're going to hear shortly, um, they did multiple albums with Rick Rubin. And again, uh, you know, we are calling this Rick Rubin when it mattered because later on what happens is you don't really hear anything identifiable as Rick Rubin coming out of later Slayer Rick Rubin um, productions per se. Um, and Slayer actually, honestly, in all of these has has the least sort of, uh, you know, in, in terms of the sound um, that I identify with this magic, magic Rick Rubin period. So so anyways, yeah, Trouble, amazing. Um but, you know, again, a, an interesting situation here, uh, and again, a corollary with Slayer, is that when he comes back and does an equally amazing, amazing record for them, Manic Frustration, their second and last in a major label situation, when, again, this band should have been massive, um, but it's just a little bit too bleak and doomy, I, I suppose, for the marketplace. Anyways, when he does that record, it has a, a more radical sound, um, a more frenzied and electric and distorted sound than the Trouble album. So it's a little less of that Rick Rubin trademark, but the same thing happens to Slayers. They move on to South of Heaven and Seasons in the Abyss. You start moving away from this thing I'm identifying and having a hard time describing to you as that classic Rick Rubin sound. Um, so you could call it a bit of a wobble. You could call it a little bit of the Rick Rubin part of the situation mattering less because they are sounding less like, uh, you know, this, this trademark Rick Rubin sound. Okay, so moving on, our fifth and last in our History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, Rick Rubin When It Mattered, this is Danzig. Take a little listen to Snakes of Christ. Okay, so this is from Danzig too. Again, interesting situation here, and I want to draw some parallels to the cult. So I was never a big fan of the first Danzig album. Danzig is is so um, you know associated with this uh, with this deca, de, deaf American Rick Rubin situation. You know these first uh, what is it five, one two three four albums in a row um, are all produced by Rick Rubin. Uh, I don't really want to discuss the first one too much. I just find it a little bit kind of like weirdly amateurish. But Danzig 2, I love. I love Danzig 2. And again, what you get, what you just heard, is the absolute trademark Rick Rubin sound. You get this big, breathy, it almost feels like 
The guitarist is way over 20 feet this way. The bass player's here. The vocals are right in your face. The drums are like cannons. Um, And again, it's just this free-burning, timeless, sort of very electric, very big sound. And you get that out of this record. Now, the, the reason I brought up The Cult a second ago is that I find... Uh, Danzig 3, How the God's Kill feels to me a little bit like Sonic Temple. It's a little bit airless. It's a little bit kind of blah in the production. And But again, the wobble, it is Rick Rubin, but it is not the Rick Rubin sound. So again, there's this fallibility, this, these, these cracks, in the, cracks in the brickwork um, that Rick Rubin, uh, as a stamp, is not always going to sound like Rick Rubin, even in the early days. But he comes back for Danzig 4, and I think Danzig 4 is just one of the pioneering production albums of all of the 80s and 90s. Uh, I just, I was just so enamored with this record when it came out. It's almost like the slightly unplugged version of Danzig 2. It's just so atmospheric and roomy, and the, and the, and the sounds and the textures on it are so interesting and yet so electric and timeless. Check it out. It's not a very heavy album, and there's frankly a lot of not very heavy stuff um uh on Danzig 2 as well. Glenn has this sort of cool um old bluesy Elvis Presley thing to him. Uh there's acoustic guitar and stuff too that you know uh that that makes him not pinned to any one genre, which is just another very commendable thing about the Danzig band. Um but yeah, again, it, this is almost like um you know, again, the the thing is, how much did Rick Rubin actually have to do with all this? You know, if you look at all these credits, what happens over time is that first album produced by Rick Rubin, then then the band starts coming into the production credit, then the engineer is part of the production credit. You know, Andy Wallace, Slayer, Rick Rubin, blah blah blah. So you get these hints in the um in the and then you get the you know the the big uh, quote unquote executive producer uh credit coming on so you get these hints when you read the credits how much Rick Rubin is actually doing on these records and again i'm i'm really bringing this up from <clears throat> you know from my own experience interviewing many of these bands and hearing what they had to say about Rick okay so um Moving on, um, we are essentially done. We have done our five songs, but I did want to mention a few other things. So as time goes on, okay, so also in this time, Rick Rubin does, um, he does Black Crow's Shake Your Moneymaker. Is there anything particularly Rick Rubin about this? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, but moving on in time, later on, okay, so he does Mick Jagger, he does Wandering Spirit. I love that record. I think, again, here we go again, um, does uh what does Rick Rubin bring to this? The bottom line is Mick Jagger turns out a really good solo album. And I have a feeling, I, I feel in my heart because I feel that there is this abstract genius to Rick Rubin, that he has something to do with these things happening, with these records becoming magic. And in a lot of cases, these records becoming massive hits. Electric was a huge hit. Rain and Blood was a hit. It put Slayer on the map. Red Hot, Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic was, you know, arguably their finest moment, their biggest moment. Um, and again, with that record, I'm not sure I mentioned this, but that record has that Rain and Blood thing to it. It has certainly that Run DMC thing to it, where it really becomes a lot about the beats and the voices. You focus in on, um, you know, on on literally 
the thing that you want to uh, hear the most and you want to celebrate the most. And I think that's what you get out of a lot of these things. But on the heavy metal side, I think Rick realizes that the thing we want to celebrate the most is uh, is the lighter, you know, the lighter in the air at a Ted Nugent concert, the love of heavy metal from the 70s. And I think that's what you get out of uh, most of these things that we've picked. Uh, Slayer, I, I suppose, accepted because it's too heavy. Um, but no, I wanted to, you know, I called this Rick Rubin when it mattered. I definitely want to mention three situations, four situations where I don't think it mattered. And again, there's negatives to this. So, uh, Metallica, Death Magnetic, that album turned out to have real problems. The Volume Wars, the redlining, the distortion, uh, it actually turned out to be an album in error in some way. A- and again, what did Rick Rubin bring to it? The Metallica guys are so massive that they um, they ha- always have to watch what they say, so you don't really hear a lot of negativity about what went on there. And Metallica are producers in themselves. They have a ma- We've done a whole episode of, uh, of History and Five Songs on the Metallica Productions. Go, go take a listen. Um, they have a massive history of production themselves. So Rick Rubin literally cannot be that massive a part of a Metallic thing. It's it, Metallica situation because they are a juggernaut in themselves. Slipknot with uh, with Volume 3, Subliminal Versus. Corey was scathing about Rick Rubin. He says he showed up three or four times. Um, you know, he, it was like... Uh, he 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 basically came out and said, "I'll never work with Rick Rubin again." Um, you know, just he basically didn't do anything. Muse has had had complaints about them. They talk about we learned how to not produce a record. Um, you know, I I feel that same situation with ZZ Top. I mean, Mescalero. I love Mescalero. I may do a whole episode on ZZ Top. Uh, you know, in the '90s and 2000s because I just think those records are fantastic, and I'm always defending them. But Mescalero is an incredible, incredible record. But La Futura is almost like just a watered-down version of Mescalero. It's shorter as well, which ticked me off. But they essentially did on Mescalero, uh, on, on La Futura, what they had already done on Mescalero. And quietly, the guys kind of had a breaking up with Rick Rubin because it just was not happening. They weren't getting along. Um, and you're going to get that with, with you know, eccentrics like Rick uh, up against an eccentric like Billy Gibbons. You know, it that was destined to not work out. And it didn't work out um so he's kind of in there and he's kind of not another one i want to mention is black sabbath 13 i don't feel that there's much of a uh, an effect here as well and i want to bring up a point about this why i don't think there's an effect i think as time moves on and you get 20 years past those early days um basically any engineer in any band you know you get the apocryphal you can make a record sound good in your bedroom so anything you want to do you can do fairly easily at this point the philosophy of a producer and the uh, and the amazing skills of the engineer that works with that producer become less important so black sabbath 13 you know did he do uh, what he was you know this idea of taking them back to their roots and all that stuff they would have done that anyways and i think at the production end it's just sort of a normal correct well-produced album there's nothing particularly rick rubin uh, about that record so there you go I didn't want to pull any punches. Um, There are so many positives and so many negatives. And, you know, when it comes down to it, you could say the positives, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, Those are some incredible, incredible records uh, that he made uh, for and with these bands early on in their career. It's some of their best work. I loved all of those records when they came out, loved the production, and and loved the direction that the bands went in uh, with those records. So tell me what you think. We've got a whole thing. 
Facebook page for History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff, or you can go to my regular page. You can email me at martinp at inforamp.net. You could see martinpopoff.com for any of my um, 80, 85 books. Um, I sign and ship them right from the office. There's PayPal buttons there for everything. Latest are, uh, are a couple of Iron Maiden ones. There's been a Rainbow one recently. Um, but yeah, there you go. Um, boy, another long one, isn't it? I uh, hope you uh, hope you stuck with me through all this. We shall uh, talk to you again uh, for another episode of History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff. Until then, um, go listen to some Rick Rubin productions. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.